Let's pray one more time. Father, I desire that you would use this message as a gift. And that you would give it as a gift to each of us. And that we would leave this place set up to worship you more deeply. And that the faith that we build here would stand the test of anything and everything that comes against it. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Taken out of context, or I don't mean to be negative, um, it's a very familiar verse, so that we can quote it and instantaneously, if I started, you could finish, be still. There you go, could have been better than that, but that's that's okay for now. Be still and know that I am God is a common enough verse, and we have heard it often enough that it's easy to to speak it and to think it and to remember it without having a clue what the context of it is. And in that pattern or in that context, I have heard from time to time in my history in the church, people talk about finding a quiet place, somewhere where you can put away the noise so that you are able to know that he is God. And that's a lovely idea, but it's not at all what the text or what the verse means. Now, in fact, it's a great idea to find a quiet place and to put away the noise and to refresh yourself. And in that context, if you want to refresh yourself in Psalm 46, think about creation. And refresh your your mind thinking about God as creator. Uh, Go to the Exodus and think about the plagues. And be refreshed in your understanding that one after another the gods of Egypt were mocked. As God did their thing in a way that they couldn't do. Um, Take some time to enter into the feelings of the people of Israel as they were up against the Red Sea. And in the, in the distance, probably got the directions wrong here, but who cares? In the distance, they could see the dust rising from the chariots who were coming. And they knew in that moment that they were trapped, feel their trepidation, feel their fear, and then fear, feel their exaltation as the Waters of the Red Sea open up and land is dry and they travel through. And then think about the wonder of watching the waters come back down and destroy Pharaoh and all of his army. Be refreshed in your understanding that he is God. 
And then take a moment and go to James chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, um, don't say, I'm going to buy this field, or I'm going to make supper, or I'm going to have build a business, or I'm going to buy a car, or I'm going to marry a wife. It doesn't say exactly that. I'm, this is in the tradition of Grant Churchill. I'm paraphrasing. I absolutely love, I, I could listen to Grant. I could listen to two people from this church read the Bible all day long. One is Grant Churchill, and the other is Eldon Unruh. Uh, and that, not for the same reason, but in both cases I feel like I am entering into the meaning of the text. Just by the way they read. Uh, <coughs> so, Go to James 4.15 and make it personal. Don't say, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to do another thing. Say, if the Lord wills, be refreshed in the knowledge that he is God. Let me read Psalm 46 for you to give you the context. God, verse 1, is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So literally, God is our refuge and strength, whether it's earthquake or tornado or who knows what. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. <clears throat> he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Then be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The meaning of that text is the knowing precedes the stillness. You don't be still in order that you might know God. You know God in order that you might be still. This message is 
a sequel. The last message I preached here was um, during Advent, and it was an Advent message on peace. But prior to that, a rare few of you might remember that I spoke on the sin of setting up the sovereignty of God as if it was in tension with the responsibility of man. That living in a way that you're either oaring that thing is a, sets you up to fail in your Christian life. That you will not be where you need to be in worship or in, obe- in obedience if you set it up in your mind so that it's going to be either I am responsible to o- obey or God is responsible to do whatever it is, whether that's believing or coming into a relationship with Christ or any number of things. So this message is intended as a sequel to unpack this a little more. It's a funny deal. Because I don't feel nervous. When I'm nervous, my mouth dries up and I, <coughs> I drink water because I have to. Um, and yet when we were sitting in the prayer room and my daughter Karis was sitting beside me, she said, are you okay? And I said, yep. And she said, are you sure? And then she said, I've gotten really good at reading the micro, what did you call that, the micro? Micro body language. I have lovely daughters. (laughs) And then I was sitting over here, and Andrew came, put his arm around me, love you, Andrew. Absolutely loved your arm around me. And then said, are you nervous? And I said, no, tense. And he said, well, tense isn't a good thing. And then I said, well, no, not tense, excited, which isn't really true either. I didn't say that. Um, This message stands for me. There's a... Now I'm drinking water to control my emotions. Before long, the water is going to be gone. Um, The message stands as a message that has taken a great deal more work than most. And I don't mean the kind of work where you sit in your office and you study Hebrew words and do Greek word studies and figure out grammar and syntax and all that kind of thing. But I desperately, not desperately, that sounds wrong, but dearly would like to communicate something to you that I think will set you up to, to handle whatever life throws at you. And your walk with God will not fling, flint, flink, what, what's the right word there? Waver. Just, there was an F word, but I lost it. <laughs> your walk with God will not waver. So I really want this to be a gift, but it's a hugely logical message that builds one piece upon another upon another. It's exactly where I live. It's my wheelhouse. This is the way my mind works. I love it with all my heart. This kind of... (laughs) Thank you. It's good that there's a top on there, Leonard. And I apologize that I didn't do the Francis Chan walk. I just couldn't get that pulled off. (laughs) Um, 
Now I'm totally lost my place, but what was I saying? See, you weren't paying attention either. <laughs> oh yeah, this is my wheelhouse. I, I'm also quite familiar that it's not a lot of, of your wheelhouses, and it's at that level that I have a, a sense of weight on me this morning, that I don't want to just spout off theology that you all go away and say, what was that about? Um, but that I want you to actually be able to take this home and that it becomes part of the essence of your relationship with God. And I have to build it one step at a time and I have to hurry because we're going to run out of time before we run out of message. So we're going to try to be tight, tighter than I have been to this point. So the first thing that you need to get really well established in your mind in order to understand where we land with this message is that before creation, God was alone. And I like to say it that way because it's not the way it's normally said. We would say, um, Israel, the Lord thy God is one. <coughs> um, Hero Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And Exodus would say, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make a graven image of any god. And, and that's the kind of language that we hear in the Bible. But if you've grown up with it all your life, you can lose what that means. So before creation, God was alone. And because he was alone, he is alone. And I don't mean by that he is alone in that he's not in relationship with me. And I don't mean by that he is alone in, in that the Father is not in relationship with the Son and the Son with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit with the Father. I, they have all those relationships now, but there is no other in the category or the realm who sits across from God. He has no rival the only ones who are his enemies are foolish creatures who have failed to recognize their creator and are walking and wishing that they could rise to his level when they can't. So know and start by knowing that he alone is God and that he is alone as God and there is none other. I'm supposed to read a bunch of verses in order for that not to be just me saying it. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. So that you can root your hearts and minds. See quite clearly that this is the teaching of Scripture. And it's fascinating to me. Um, I, I very much doubt that you can get into the journey of a theologian. But it's fascinating to me that the things that I teach you now, both in that first message and this message, I could actually teach you from anywhere in the scriptures. That every page that I open teaches this. Now, that's maybe overstated, but pretty close. I'm reading through Jeremiah, and it's page after page after page. And I was reading through Isaiah before Jeremiah, and same thing. So... This is not just a uh, rare teaching of Scripture. This is the uniform teaching of Scripture. But to give you some kind of clear passages, 
Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And the scriptures assigns creation to Jesus, to the Son of God, Takes me a long time to flip pages. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He, that is Christ, is the in image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now notice we do not learn this in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we have no mention of the creation of the spirit world. We do not know that there are demons and angels in Genesis chapter 1. We discover that in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan comes into the garden and we discover, hey, what in the world, Lucifer? Uh, so we know now that there are spirits who are fallen and rebellious and working against God, but we don't discover that in the story of creation. We discover that in Colossians, that God created, Jesus created angels, and some of them fell and became demons. Um, John chapter 1 verse 3 says the same thing more or less as Colossians, that Jesus created everything. God created everything, and nothing has been created that he didn't create. Um, so we end up back to where I started, and that's the, that's the foundation. Um, I've given you the notes, by the way, because I fully expect that for this to have the maximum value to you, you're going to want to go back and read this again and say, okay, how does this work logically? Because this is a very one one point upon another building message. Okay, so before creation, God was alone. And because he was alone, he is alone. There is no other God. In the prayer room over there, Mandy prayed something about, I forget exactly, um, how I had prepared this message and that God should anoint me and anoint you to hear this message, and that it should go well according to the way I prepared it, and then she added at the end, and if he's supposed to say something that he hasn't prepared, please let him, or something like that. That's about right, right? Yes, exactly. And I went away from there, and, and there is one thing that came to mind that I think fits as an answer to Mandy's prayer, and it is this. When you're thinking about worldview, okay, the worldview of our culture and society is one realm, the natural realm, okay? They have no spiritual realm, and they have, they have no created spiritual realm, and they have no uncreated, eternal spiritual realm. And if you're thinking about New Age, which is the only other sort of fairly common worldview, they have a natural realm, and then they have a spiritual realm, but that spiritual realm is not a realm of created spirits and demons, or angels and demons. 
And I don't even know how to express what that spiritual realm is. It's kind of like a force. It's a, something beyond the physical, but it's very undefined. Uh, the Christian worldview, and that'll help you understand this whole message, is that there is a natural realm expressed in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the creation of the world. Uh, that there is a created spiritual realm that is made up of demons and angels. Actually, if you want to be technical, angels, some of them fallen and some of them unfallen. And an uncreated, eternal spiritual realm populated by one or three, actually, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three realms Always, and this is key, always working simultaneously. So Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, to those who were unbelievers, you have... I shouldn't do that. The guys in the Bible study laugh at me because I can't quote the Lord's Prayer. shouldn't be just going trying to quote scripture, but um, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from the commonwealth, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants. Now I'm, I think I'm actually missing the verse. Anyways, there's a verse that says, when we were unbelievers, we walked according to the power of the course of the, this world. The, the teaching is that you don't have a choice between walking in the natural realm all by yourself or not. You have a choice of following the leading of Lucifer, of Satan, or following the Holy Spirit. There's no pathway, which is just you doing your own thing. How come it's not Ephesians 2.11? Ah, thank you. That's, and you were dead, that's, there we go, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We talked in the men's Bible study and we used the word that I like and we said there's normal demonic and then there's special de demonic. And normal demonic is what happens when you're just disobeying God. It's not that you're under the control of a demon like you would be if you were demon-possessed, but you are still following the leading of Satan. All right. Boy, I have to hurry up. Idols. Point number two. Idols are imaginary gods. They don't exist. This is a surprise. Because so, so much in the scripture speaks of have no other gods, don't follow other gods. They were worshiping other gods. On and on and on it goes like that. But in actual fact, there are no other gods. 
Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm reading through Jeremiah right now. So I just picked, picked Jeremiah passages. Uh, I could go all over the place. Jeremiah chapter 2. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Idols are imaginary. They don't exist. Jeremiah chapter 10. Grant and I have a fellowship. And we fellowship right here. And he quotes Isaiah, and I quote Jeremiah, and they both say the same thing. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1 to 11. Hear the word the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree, you really need to enter into this because this is fun. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. Isaiah will say, a tree from the forest is cut down and you cut it in half. Half of it you chop up and throw in the fire to warm yourself. And the other half of it you turn into a god. The logic of it is obviously ludicrous. But Jeremiah says it. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. You see, there's a problem. Your God might fall on his face. So what do you do to fix that? Well, you nail him to the mantle. Nail him down, then he's going to stand up. And then bow down before him. That's the logic of the text. It's just glorious. I've got to find my place. Get excited. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Isn't that wonderful imagery? And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And then if you would, for a moment, enjoy this verse with me, for it makes my heart sing. 
Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. The logic of that is spectacular. The gods whom the nations say control the heavens and the earth are going to be dead and gone when the heavens and the earth remain. Guess what? How many of you have heard of anybody who worships Baal today? Moloch? The gods of the Old Testament are dead and gone. The heavens and the earth remain. Idols are imaginary. They don't exist. You can read Jeremiah 16, 19, and 20, and if you want, you can read all the way through the book of Isaiah. It's going to say the same thing. When people set up an image in their house, they believed it represented a real God. That's an understanding that you need to have. When somebody made an, an idol of Baal and set it up in their house and bowed down before them, they didn't actually think that that idol was the God. It represented Baal, who was in charge of fertility. So if you wanted to have a child, you've definitely got involved in worshiping that thing that you set up on your mantle. He was in charge of the rain. So if your land was dry, you made sure that you pleased him too. And sometimes you went as far as taking your four-year-old son and putting him in the arms of a molten image to try to get that image to give you rain. Sorry, there is no God. They are not gods. Idols are imaginary, they don't exist. Then the surprise comes, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Starts in verse 16, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. So what in the world kind of a message is this? I start by making a passionate case that the idols are imaginary and that they don't exist. There is no such thing as another God. And then I say they sacrifice to demons. And it's very simple. Satan wants only that you don't have God in the place that God belongs. So for them, good, Baal works. All of the cultures believe in the gods. There's a multitude of them, so let's just set up more and more gods and have the peoples give those gods glory and have the peoples give those gods credit and have the peoples worship those gods. Satan doesn't care who you worship as long as it's not God. Alvin said he had to turn up 
his hearing aid. I think he probably just turned it down. So when anybody in the Old Testament was worshiping idols, they were, in fact, worshiping demons. Because demons inhabit idols. And demons inhabit everything that is set up to keep people away from worshiping God. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 19, it says 19 to 32. I don't know if I want to read that much. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No! I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? If you have a, ch a pen, change the reference from 32 to 22 because that's actually what I intended. Idols are Satan's strategy to keep humans from knowing God. When we worship idols, we give credit that belongs only to God, to someone or something that is not God. This is Satan's strategy. He doesn't care what we worship as long as it is not God. The cultures of the Old Testament trusted Baal, Moloch, and a hundred others to provide for them and saw them as ultimately responsible. So your life was a constant battle to please the gods so that they would treat you well. We are far too sophisticated for that. In our culture, we trust ourselves to provide and see ourselves or science and technology or nature as ultimately responsible. So when we see a thunderstorm in our culture, we check the weather report and we learn about low pressure systems and high pressure systems and what brought this thunderstorm about. We look to nature to provide the answer to everything that's going on in our lives. And when we experience things, it's hard to pray because it's clear to us that it's just natural what happened. In our culture, we trust ourselves and see ourselves, our science, our technology, or nature as ultimately responsible. In both the Old Testament nations and in our culture, the gods are imaginary. Might be the hardest point of the message. Both cultures have no god. Baal in the Old Testament and all of his cohorts, no different than science and technology or human choice or you name it, in our culture. As long as we have something to explain why things happen the way they do, that we don't have to refer to God, then we are a godless people. Now, I don't think you're a godless people. And that's not why I'm preaching this message, but I do think that you, like me, will struggle 
And I don't want to say to put God in his place, because the fact of the matter is that you could spend your whole life trying to take God out of his place, and you're not going to move him even a millimeter. God is in his place. And we can't either put him in his place or take him out of his place, but we can acknowledge or put him in his place in our hearts or deny him his place in our hearts. And every time, every time you are a parent and your child is going astray and, and you think it's all dependent on you, you're carrying that on your shoulders and it's killing you. It's idolatry. Or, more like my story, when you think God is so sovereign that there's nothing that you can do to change anything. So if you forget to say things you need to say or do things you need to do, big deal. In either case, it's idolatry. In both the Old Testament nations and in our culture, the gods are imaginary. Both cultures have no god. The devil doesn't care if we are sophisticated and don't believe in things that are not real, like Baal. As long as we give the place of God in our hearts to something else. Be still and know that I am God. Or because you know that I am God, be still. We're studying Job. We just started in the men's Bible study. And it was, it was a severe temptation to change all the references in my, in my message so that they were Job references. <laughs> because that book teaches this like powerfully. And I thought to myself, Job, at the end of chapter 1, where he's laying there and his 10 kids have all been killed and his, his house has fallen down on his children, or his house has fallen down on his children, and his flocks have been decimated, and his servants have been slaughtered. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was still. He was still. In spite of the most devastating experience any human being could have. And while, they were, and while he was still speaking, and while he was still speaking, it, the, the message is that he lost first some livestock and the servants, and then while that, that message was coming, the next message and the next message and the next message. Like it was a, it was a bad day for Job. But he was still. Naked I came into the world, but naked I will leave. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The whole point of the book of Job is that no one could dislodge God from the place that God held in Job's heart. Satan could throw his worst, and Job would not let go of God. So what do we get when we know God and when God has his place in our hearts? We get to rest. We get to fight demons. We get to obey. 
Now, I would love to spend another half an hour talking about obedience and how obedience fits into this because that's where the Lord is working in a beautiful way in my own heart as I... Uh, I see creation now as, as, I mean, I've always seen creation this way, but it's really fresh for me that creation is God's handiwork and that when I'm feeding cows, the more I can do it so that the cows are operating the way God created and the grasses and everything else, I'm actually seeing things that the Bible says nothing about as an obedience because I'm obeying the sovereign creator of the universe. And I'm, I can't actually see that clock back there. What is it? So when am I supposed to be done? Because I'll just keep going until I have to quit. 12? <laughs> when am I supposed to be done? Is that true? Oh. All right. Uh, I'm going to take about two minutes, okay? So I told you earlier that there is a natural world and there is a created spiritual world with demons and angels. And then there's an uncreated eternal spiritual world that is inhabited by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit alone. That middle world... That middle realm of demons and angels. Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers. Paul says, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeing whom he may devour. Paul says that there are arrows, flaming darts coming at us. This is our normal life. All right? Weeks ago, Josh said, I was driving here to preach. Things were going all wrecked. And my truck acted up. And the devil was in my truck or working in my truck. And then Debbie gave her testimony about sharing and witnessing to people and needing to talk to somebody. And her car was acting up and... The devil was there too. And I would say to you that in the spring of 2022, there were demons using bacteria to make my cattle blind and demons involved in viruses to make my cattle sick and demons involved in the weather so that it turned in on itself and was making my world into an absolute disaster. But here's the deal. The moment we say that that's all that was happening, we have entered into idolatry. Because at the same time, God is active and working and doing his deal through whatever. And so you have crazy passages that when we were reading in devotions, Lynn was reading and she had a lot of trouble with this where it says, an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. What kind of a worldview is that? It's a worldview where God is God and he's never not God, so you never have to worry that there's something coming into your life that is outside 
of his influence and control and care and compassion. You can rest in him while you fight the demons with all your heart and obey him with all of your passion. And that's what it means to be still and know that he is God. Let me pray. Father, it is too easy for us to separate life into spiritual and physical, to think of some things as your domain and other things as Satan and the angel's domain and other things as our domain. Help us to fall into the pattern and the thinking where we pray about everything because we know that there's nothing that you can't touch and don't touch. And help us to rest in you Help us to see obedience not as a chore, but as a glorious privilege. That you have created a world in which we can act and do and work. And where our choices make real differences in the lives of other people and our own. May we be people for whom obedience is precious. Because we know you. In Jesus' name, amen.